Good morning. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Get to the text in a minute. You have been affirming an important biblical spiritual law your whole life. Perhaps without even knowing that you were doing it. You have formed many habits and patterns, ways of thinking since your childhood, and you are to some degree, maybe even to a large degree, depending on the individual, a product of those patterns and habits. If you've eaten well and exercised, you're probably healthy today. Don't judge. If you studied and worked hard in the past, you likely have a decent vocation. If you had kids, you possibly may have grandkids. Follow me here. If you've learned to put money away, it will likely be there for you when you retire. If you've been good to people, people generally will be good to you. If you have loved your spouse well, you have a good or even a great marriage. However, if you didn't eat well and exercise, if you didn't study and work hard, if you didn't love your spouse well, if you weren't good to people, if you haven't put any money away, you've likely reaped the result of those actions or inactions. The lesson in all things in life is that you reap what you sow. When we look at the biblical response to stewardship, and we've been talking about this for five weeks, this is the sixth and final week, and the topic I'm going to deal with today is the pleasure of sowing in order to experience the pleasure of reaping. But more often than not, when we talk about sowing and reaping, in this context, at least in 2 Corinthians 9, it seems to, to fall into the category of it's all about what we give and what we do with what we give. However, we know that both Old Covenants and New Covenants have a lot to say about sowing and reaping. In the Gospels, the Bible teaches us uh, from Matthew and from Mark about sowing and then reaping 30, 60, and 100-fold, far more than you've sown into the land, but you've done so much better. We, we recognize that the Bible teaches that the fruitfulness of people and, and that some are more fruitful than others because of their uh, willingness and their ability to sow, that they, they reap on the other end of that. There's even a passage in the book of Hosea, and those of you that are in Bible study through the midweek have, have, have read this, and we've talked a little bit about this, that those that sow to the wind reap the 
whirlwind. And so there's a, a negative connotation to sowing and reaping, but, but the truth is still the same. Whatever you sow, you reap. But, but generally, we actually reap beyond what we sow. And that's the goal, is to reap beyond what you've sown. Whether you're a farmer, or whether you're somebody hard at work, or you're sowing into your marriage or into your family, or you're sowing your finances into the kingdom of God, that we recognize that the principle really is you reap more than you sow. It's a good thing. The background in this particular passage of Scripture is this. The Corinthian church to whom Paul is writing has promised to financially assist the mother church in Jerusalem. They've committed to that. They said, yes, we're going to do that. The problem is, as they're getting closer and closer to the delivery date, the Apostle Paul is finding out that the Corinthian church isn't really at their goals. We've kept a little thermostat, thermometer there for you, letting you know where we are on the extra missions money that we're looking to raise this year. And you've been able to, to chart that with us. Gives you a visual of where we're at and hopefully a reminder that if you haven't given, that you will do so. Well, we could say that Paul had a, a thermometer somewhere in the Roman Empire and he was tracking the Corinthian giving. And what he had noticed was, regardless of how high the thermometer was, uh, the, the Corinthians weren't budging it very much. The red wasn't going up in there. The, it, it just wasn't traveling well at all. What do they put in those things? Mercury? What's in those? Mercury? Yeah, somebody nod for me. Help me out here. Science is not my thing. So they're, they're behind. But not only are they behind, but the Macedonian church, churches to the north of them, which are in a a much harder financial strait. They're, they're not as wealthy as the Corinthian church. But the, the Macedonian churches have also seized the opportunity uh, to, to sow into the kingdom. And, and their thermometer is pretty much already at the top. And so the Apostle Paul is looking at the Macedonian churches and he's saying they've reached their goals. In fact, you remember from last week that we talked about the fact that they'd even been able to give beyond because they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to the work. So they've, they've far exceeded the expectations. But the Corinthian church is still lagging behind. So Paul is writing this letter and it's one last nudge to get them over the top. But he's, he's in a quandary of that every spiritual leader faces in a Christian organization when you're talking about funds or money is how to do it in a godly way. How to do it in a way that people don't feel manipulated. And so Paul is looking at what's going on here and he, he comes up with a plan of, of how to get the Corinthian church to sow just a little bit more into the kingdom of God. And you'll notice his approach in, in chapter 9, and, and let me begin just reading a little bit of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 for you. Paul says, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. Catch it? 
well, if there's no need to write about it, why are you writing about it? So he's got some wordplay. He is saying, look, there's no need to write to you about this because I know you, this is what's implied, I know you already know about the need. This is not new. This is not the first time you've heard this. In fact, you guys have, you know, again, volunteered to contribute. And so you would think that because you know already, you'll know that already, that I wouldn't have to write this. But because you're not responding to it, Paul is actually writing to them. You've had your pastors do that over the years. You folks have been pastored long enough that you know that from time to time, pastors say, well, you know, I don't want to remind you, but here I am to remind you. You probably said it to your kids, so don't just pick on pastors. Paul says this, For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that uh, since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that are boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow. Not only is he sending a letter, but remember, right? They didn't have Canada Post back in those days. The, the letter is, tra- is traveling with somebody. Somebody's bringing the letter. So yes, somebody's going to come to the Corinthian church and he's gonna, they're going to put a letter down, but there's also likely going to be a couple of brothers or sisters there that are going to be there to remind them just via their presence that they're lagging a little bit behind. But there's also a letter, but there'll be the personal touch as well. Verse three, but I am sending the brothers in order that are boasting about you and this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. Notice Paul is saying this, my reputation's kind of on the line as well. I told the Macedonians you'd be ready. You're not. That's making me uncomfortable as well and I don't want to be deemed a liar. Verse 4, for if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. So there's some background. So then he says this to the Corinthian church. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work as it is written. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase, notice the word increase, your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, there's a little bit more that comes. There's another paragraph that follows that. It's got some good stuff in it as well. But for time's sake, and and just to keep the message clear and succinct, I'm going to stop at verse 11. But the paragraph that follows has some good stuff too. So let's talk about Paul's approach. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2, the Apostle Paul creates a little positive competition. He really does. He knows what he's doing here. He lets the Corinthians know that he's been talking them up to the Macedonians. And he said this, 
because I've been talking you up to the Macedonians and your willingness to give, the Macedonians are giving. So hey, church in Corinth, if you fail to come through with this, you're going to have a lot of spiritual egg on your face because your willingness to give is what has inspired them to give. And if you don't show up and give, man, this is just going bad in a terrible, terrible way. So the Macedonians are getting involved because they want to have some spiritual competition. They don't want to be won up by the church to the south, especially the wealthier church to the south. Now you have to remember, and again, I gave you a, a, a Google update, right? A few weeks ago, I told you that Macedonia was changing its name to northern Macedonia in order to get entrance into NATO because the Greeks didn't like them calling themselves Macedonia because to the Greeks, the Macedonia is a province of Greece, and so they didn't like that. Now, you don't have to appreciate any of that. As my wife says, that's what kind of information? Useless information. But, but, but here's where it might become useful to you. The cultural tension that the Macedonians and the Greeks experience today in the 21st century goes way, 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 way back. Paul knows that. It ain't like they hate each other. They're Christians. They love Jesus now. But Greeks are Greeks, and Macedonians are Macedonians. The Macedonians will tell you that Alexander the Great came from Macedonia. Don't call him a Greek. He's a Macedonian. So there's some, some friendly rivalry there. You know, a little bit like Windsor, Essex, Southern Ontario, Northern Ontario. Uh, let me break it down into language that some of you will really enjoy. Leafs Canadians. I tell you, if there had been a power outage last night in Toronto after one period, we'd have had you. A little friendly competition. Hey, Macedonians, the Corinthians are giving. Oh, the Corinthians are giving? Oh, then we want to give too. Hey, Corinthians, the Macedonians are out giving you. You're not going to let that happen, are you? You're not going to let your neighbors to the north out give you. Of course not. So Paul, Paul creates a little positive competition there. It's for a worthy cause but he creates a little positive competition. He also, in, in chapter 9, verse 4, creates the potential of embarrassment. Hey, Corinth, if you don't show up, I'm going to be embarrassed because I'm the one that said that you were going to be there, and you're going to be embarrassed as well because remember, it's your northern brothers. And you can't let them show you up. He says to them, it would be unfortunate if we found you unprepared, meaning that whatever you had promised, that you were unable to deliver. And then finally, he deals with the overarching spiritual law. You reap what you sow. Now, <clears throat> here he's touching on what we, might, what we might say is the dark side of us as spiritual beings, as Christ followers. The finding the balance of, of saying this, if you sow you'll reap but not falling into the trap of sowing simply because 
you want to reap. Was that clear enough? Where the motive can become somewhat clouded. Oh, I'm willing to be generous, but I'm willing to be generous because I believe that God's going to bring it back to me 30, 60, and 100 fold, and I'm going to be able to line my pockets even more. So by giving, it becomes a, I'm going to get rich because I'm sowing generously. And that is not what the Bible is teaching here. I don't know if God wants to make you rich or not. I have volunteered on more than one occasion. And I'm assuming I'm not rich as it relates to money is because um, other people would maybe do better with it. That's what I'm telling myself. It makes me feel good. I can't think of any other reason. Can you? Thank you. But that's not why we give. Remember what's going on here. The church in Jerusalem, the mother church, is experiencing difficulty. Things aren't good in Judea. There's, there's probably some kind of famine, drought thing going on, and they're struggling there. But in the other parts of the Roman Empire where the church is flourishing, the Gentiles have said this, you know what? We have a spiritual obligation because the church of Jerusalem is where everything got started. Those are our spiritual roots. So we have a spiritual obligation to help them out because this is where everything got rolling for us. Right? Right back in the days of Acts, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, right? Right in there. We all got our start from there. That's where the Genesis is. So we have an obligation to help them. We're Gentiles, they're Jews, but we're all one in Jesus Christ. And so the goal here isn't, hey, Corinth, give and you'll get rich. The goal here is give and others will be blessed by your giving. They'll be helped. The burdens that they're living under now will be alleviated. That's why you get the quote in this passage in 2 Corinthians 9 from, from the Psalms where it talks about the poor. The whole idea is, is helping the poor. And at this particular time, the church in, church in Jerusalem could be deemed poor. Not poor spiritually, but financially, economically, it certainly could be at the time. So here's what Paul is covering for us as it relates to sowing and reaping. I think the number one priority is this. Keep your motives pure. We do not sow into the kingdom. We do not give to our local church. We don't donate to other worthy charities with this motive in mind. God has to bless me because there's a spiritual law and the blessing that I want to receive is financial. Now God can choose to do that. And he has with many people. And we give glory to God for that. But the blessings or, or what we reap can come back in many other ways. Don't you think? About just knowing that you've done good. That you've alleviated somebody's difficulties and challenges in life. That maybe, you know, if you're helping somebody that's tight financially, maybe putting groceries on the table so that they can eat. Uh, paying a bill so they're not worried about the lights going off giving them $50 for gas so that they can actually get to work this week. But unfortunately, they don't have the money to pay the gas. I mean, there's, the, there's this, which I don't think as Christians we're nearly as good enough. There's the whole this sometimes, which is reward enough that when you bless somebody and they say this to you, thank you. 
Sometimes that's, that's just enough. Sometimes it's a promise you made in the past when you weren't in a great financial place. And you said, God, if I ever get to a place where I can sow into other people, I'm going to do that. And so now you're in a place where you can do that and you have the opportunity in the past where you've been a receiver. Now you're one who can give and, and there's that whole, you know what, I'm honoring God with the promise that I made to him years ago that if this ever got turned around, I wouldn't hoard it, but I'd share it. And there's the wonderful feeling that comes from just helping somebody else out. And keeping your word, keeping your promise to the Lord. As Jesus said, right, it's better to give than receive. Hard to believe, right? I mean, just don't run past that. That's one of those verses in the Bible where you look at it and you say, well, where's the, where's the reference for that? Where did Jesus say that? And you'll notice that those that write your study Bibles or do the commentaries will tell you this, that there isn't an exact reference where that comes from, that it may be actually a, a few things that are pulled together, but, but, but the apostles have this understanding that Jesus said, it's better to give than receive. And most of us, most of us, don't have a great understanding of that. Christmas may be as close as some of us ever get to it, where you've, you found the perfect gift for somebody, and it didn't matter really what it cost, but you found the perfect gift, and you can't wait for them to open it. And while they're opening it, you're almost more excited than they are. Ever been there? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. You know, I was able to, to bless blessed, well, I mean, I went with her too, but blessed Karen. Karen loves to go to Disney, so I blessed, blessed us with a, a Disney trip this year, and um, I, had it, I had it written out on a sheet of paper, and so she's opening the, the envelope, and she's reading the piece of paper, and the kids know what's going on, but she's not really sure what's going on yet, and it's got Disney print all over it and stuff like that, and it's like, you know, something along the line, hey, we're going to Disney this year, and it was about, you know, five or ten seconds into it, and then she realized, hey, we're going to Disney, and she started to cry, and we took the picture. Well, I tell you, I had so much fun in those, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. It was almost as much fun as going there with her, just because just it was a complete surprise. I don't know how we pulled it off, but we did. And it was a complete surprise. And it, it, so it's moments like that where it, it's great to give. Maybe you've helped your kids out or your grandkids with their education or you helped buy them their, their first car. You know, may, may not have been a Maserati, but you helped them buy their first car and they're really excited about it, but you're just excited about them jumping into it because it's their first car and even as it is in 1995, it's still their first car, right? They're excited and you get a little bit of that, wow, you know, it really is good to give. And God does promise blessings. He does. Those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. And those who sow generously will reap generously. You reap what you sow in every area of your life. This is just not a 2 Corinthians 9 Biblical Financial Stewardship Sunday thing. In every area of your life. I try to emphasize that in the introduction. Give thought to what you will give. And then you won't do it reluctantly or under compulsion or under the compulsion of others. 
as I was reading that on Thursday and Friday, I really liked that. I, I like the fact that God says, look, give some thought to it. Here, here's the thing, right? I, I like that. I'm kind of an independent fella. Um, pastor's up here. I'm a pastor now. I'm up here preaching, telling you about sowing and reaping and sowing into the kingdom and that if you do that generously, you'll reap generously. And, and as much as you may submit to my spiritual authority, I also have to say this to you. But the Bible also says that after I preach the word or teach the word to you, that you know what you should do? You should give some thought to this. What do you want to do with that word? What does it mean to sow generously for you? It's going to be different than somebody else. How would you like to reap? Maybe money isn't what you need, but some kind of spiritual blessing is what you need. Family blessing. Salvation. But before we open our wallet or open our purse or sign the check or do the debit card or, or however it is that we decide to give, the Bible says, look, give some thought to it. But not just the amount, but the attitude. Because he goes on to say, and I know I touched on this last week, God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. Now, pastors will say to you that if you study the Greek, the cheerful there means something along the lines of hilarious. I'm not sure I'm yet a hilarious giver. But I'm a cheerful giver. I'm in process just like you. God loves a cheerful giver. When I was a kid, my mom always had a purse filled with change. And back in those days, 20 cents worth of change could get you a lot of candy. I remember the, the little confectionery store that we used to go to in, in Naughton, in my hometown of Naughton. Said guys from Bell River and that. Anyways. Bibby's, Bibby's Confectionery Store. And Mr. Bibby was the nicest confectionery store owner on the planet. Remember back in the, so if you're under 40, just go to sleep for a minute. But for the rest of us, remember when you could go to the store and you could get little bags of candy and sometimes it was like three for a penny or four for a penny or five for a penny? All oh, the good days, eh? Man, this generation, you don't even have a penny. They took it away. And Mr. Bibby would always do this. Oh, I mean, he was just a great guy. He could say, hey, whoever the kid was, but hey, Brent, um, you can get that, or for a penny, you can have what's in my hand. <laughs> now, this is back in the days before hand sanitizer, and we were all dying. <laughs> you didn't mind a bare hand back in those days. And I always took the hand because Mr. Bibby always had more was always better than what he was offering you so I always took the hand because I always got more and he would do that every time and I mean I don't know if I ever thought this is the dumbest guy on the planet because he's always got more but I tell you I took advantage of it every single time he did it I would sow the penny but I'd get way more than that and he was a cheerful giver 
wasn't some kind of Scrooge, you know, trying to make a whole bunch of money off the backs of kids so that he could retire better. He was just a great guy. What I remember about Mr. Bibby more than the whole, hey, what's in my hand, was just the demeanor of this guy. I mean, how many of you remember the names of your confectionery store owners? Right? You got one? What's his name, Reg? La Chapelle. Good Irish name. Mr. Bibby. God gives cheerfully to you and wants you to give cheerfully to others. Do you recognize that part? Remember the very first sermon, right? God owns you. God owns your stuff. We always want to talk about God owns the stuff. No, 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 no. God owns you. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6 teaches that. I'm going to dig way deep into that next Sunday on the first discipleship sermon, so just wait for that one. And God gives cheerfully to us. Don't you think? Quit thinking you work for it all and that you you deserve it because you're smarter and harder working than everybody else. Maybe you are, but as a Christ follower, you should know very well that everything that you have comes from the hand of God. Everything. And if you've had the ability to be creative and work hard and make all kinds of money and you're successful, that's great. God made that possible. Why he didn't make me as smart as you, I don't know. But nonetheless, God made that possible. So it all comes from him. And he cheerfully gives to us. The Bible says with God, it's not just about the stuff, but even the spiritual gifts, right? They're grace gifts. It's not because we're wonderful or spiritual or smarter or anything like that. He just gives gifts because he loves us. And he wants to strengthen the church. And he does it, he does it with a cheerful attitude and spirit. And so as his Christ followers, those that are to be Jesus here on the planet, if God gives to us cheerfully, then we should give cheerfully to others. And it shouldn't be, well, if I give this, I won't have that. If I give that, I will lack. He goes on to say that God gives us the ability. He gives us the ability to increase the seed in which we have so that we can continue to sow more. In other words, we don't create the seed. God creates the seed for us. And as long as we keep giving out the seed and it grows 30, 60, and 100 fold, God says he'll keep giving it to us generously. Why? Because he knows that your work of being generous and sowing in into so many places is doing so much good. So he's happy to give. God doesn't just replace what you give. He increases your store of seed. The lesson from Malachi chapter 3, and we've already dealt with the old covenant stuff with that, is this, you cannot give God. I don't care how big your storehouse is. I don't care how big your bank account is. God's bigger. You cannot outgive God. But as I said just a few minutes ago, it's not just about the money. It's about the spiritual gifts. It's just about his blessings in every area of our lives. And so we willingly give and we pass it on and we become conduits because God's going to continue to increase our seed. We're never going to lack because our attitude is this. If I have a pot of something 
and I give some of that away, then my pot is smaller. And God says, no, if you have a pot of something and you give it away, I'm going to increase your seed so that you can do even more. It comes down to this, folks, faith, as all things do. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Whoever sows sparingly, it's a biblical law, and however you sow will reap sparingly. However you sow generously, the Bible says, promises, you will reap generously. The Bible tells us to think about what we give, but not just the amount, but the attitude towards it. And we don't give reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver and God will supply your needs according to his riches and glory. But the purpose of that isn't just to take care of you, but that you perhaps can take care of others. Let me just ask you some general questions. They're rhetorical, but, but let me ask them anyways. Think about, think about all the places that you send money. You, you, you tithe to your local church. You have offerings. You have almsgiving and all of that. And just think for a minute. Just So I'll, I'll give you a minute just to kind of revel in this. How many of you sponsor a child somewhere in the world? Keep your hands up. Look at that. Look at the hands. Vast majority, right? How many of you have, have given to some kind of medical need of somebody else, right? How many of you have sent a charitable organization some money that it can carry on its mission, whatever that is, right? Why do we do that? You know why. It's rhetorical. Why do we do that? Because we know that there are people in need and we know that we're blessed and so we want to help. We don't do it because I'm hoping to get something back. Karen and I had the privilege just recently when we went to, the, uh, went to Honduras with the team, a number of us had, have sponsored children there, and we got to meet the child that we sponsor and, and see the very humble conditions in which she lives. And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to get your, your head and your heart around that. Um, it, it's so different from here. But at the same time, it makes such a huge difference, Right? Talking about sowing and reaping, your 40 bucks a month to that sponsored child or my 40 bucks a month does way more than 40 here could ever do. It, it has that multiplication factor, right? It, it just, you, you, you sow generously, but the reaping happens more so in that child's life and in that family's life because you're not just touching a child. You're not just, you know, helping her with her education. You know, there's a spiritual foundation. There's food for the family. There's some medical aid as well. And you realize that you sow this much and it reaps that much because God's laws never lie. And so it's a gift to give. It's a pleasure to give. We don't want to do it reluctantly or under compulsion. Although the discussion here in 2 Corinthians 9 is literally about money, and it's about bringing money to a church to help them, the people at the church, through some really difficult and challenging times, we can sow in many different kinds of ways. We certainly need to sow financially. But we can certainly sow in, in many other kinds of ways as well. 
there are relationships. What are you sowing into your relationships? Assistance to others, not just a $20 bill or a $50 bill, but just being there for prayer support or moral support or emotional support. There is the spiritual form of blessing others. The Apostle Paul talks about going to a church and he says, my reason for coming is that I might impart to you some spiritual gift. Paul had something that he could strengthen that church with. We all have those somethings, the money, the relationships, and the ability to assist, and the Spirit of God that we can sow all of those things into the kingdom. Money does not have to be the sole focus. So let me give you the three reasons why we sow and reap. First of all, we do that is because it helps others. It helps others. We're not doing it for ourselves. Paul says the Jerusalem church is in trouble. Hey, Gentile churches, let's get together and give. Why are we giving? Because it's going to help them out. Simple. We sow and reap because if you keep reading in 2 Corinthians 9, it glorifies God. Now, maybe I should have put that one first. But it glorifies God. It should not glorify us. All praise to God, it says, that it may flow to God, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And third, it teaches us. Idolatry is a real problem in the 21st century. You and I don't have a share of poles, and we're not bowing down to the bales like Israel was doing. But we've got our own idols. Modern 21st century idols. And a lot of it deals with stuff. And acquiring stuff that sometimes we simply can't afford it. And it's bearing us in debt. And so the Bible teaches us about not always looking to our own needs, but to the needs of others. I'm willing not to buy this or purchase this, not just simply because I don't need it. But if, if I kept the money, maybe I could do something more with the money. Maybe I could sow it into something eternal, into spiritual things and spiritual values, and at the same time, not make everything about me. Good 21st century lessons. Sowing and reaping should be part of the spiritual mechanisms that drive us as we do things as a believer and in the church. Sowing for gospel advancement. Sowing to meet the needs, not only of the church family, but others, the poor that it says there in 2 Corinthians 9. Shelter, food, clothing, medicine, education, training, the unborn and the newborn. Those are all acts of worship. We honor God and recognize the grace given to us. Teaches us to give with a good heart, generously. It breaks the power of idolatry. And it teaches us the prioritization and the use of our money. Reminding us always that it was always His. But God does have a plan how we should spend His money. 